Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. You guys ever been driving anywhere and got lost? I mean, this is pre-cell phone and GPS days. Y'all, y'all remember those days? Did they have anybody in the room that would admit that they're directionally challenged like I am? Anybody? I just need to know where my brothers and sisters are. Thank y'all. Man, I'll tell you, ever been, I mean, really, really bad lost? Like, you had no idea lost. You make a turn, right? So you're, you're somewhere and you're just like, well, like, I mean, I've got to do something. You're just driving down. You just say, well, man, I hope that if we turn this way, it's going to get us out of this mess. Well, usually what happens to me is I make that turn and it takes me into a neighborhood that's sketchy. It leads me to a place that I feel, oh, no, we should have never turned here. And I begin to pray, God, please protect me while we're going through this neighborhood. Anybody ever had that feeling? I had that experience, okay? We probably were passing each other, you know, when it was going on at that time. Uh, how about this one? And, and this, I don't mean to trigger anything because I'm a, I do a lot of counseling and I know this could trigger something. That's not my intent, so stick with me. But, man, you, you ever been separated from your parents as a kid? Like, like you were with them in the supermarket and then the next thing you realize... They, they've left you. That's what you feel. And that sense of panic and fear sets in your heart like nothing else you've ever known. And you begin to cry and you begin to just walk around with that lost look on your face. And then somebody finds you and they're like, hey, you know, have you lost your mommy and daddy? And you're like, uh-huh. And then you have to trust them that they're not going to kidnap you. You know, that's one of those weird things as a kid you're, you're processing. Um, I remember one time we were on vacation at the beach, and um, I was sitting in, a, in my chair just watching the waves, and I noticed, you know this look if you've ever lost a child. There was a father, I mean, walking up and down the beach, and he was pale. He was petrified. It just fear was all over him. So I, I asked him, hey, can I help you? And he said, yes, I've lost my daughter. Panic, right? So then he had to turn to me and then he had to trust that I was going to be able to help him find his daughter, right? And the way this kind of works. There's something about this desperate trust. I mean, this, de- this desperate turn that we make that then causes us to have to deeply trust whomever we've turned to or whatever we've turned to. Impossible situations in life that they do that. Um, Maybe you're in an impossible situation in your life right now. Maybe it's a relationship and you're saying, "How how will my spouse and I ever be reconciled? Maybe you've recently got a diagnosis that you're like, how in the world am I ever going to be healed from this? Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter, and you're like, there's just no way. 
There's no way they're coming home. Maybe you have gotten into some financial difficulty and you know and feel and sense that there's just no way to get out of this. I mean, we're just in too deep. We're just in way over our heads. I mean, where's the money going to come from, right? And you're working all you can. You've, you've used all your savings. You've borrowed from your parents. You just have nowhere else to turn. You see, when, when we get in those kind of situations, there's, there's some questions we begin to ask, right? What does this all mean? I mean, like, where did this come from? What, what are we going to do? Where do we turn? And I mean, really, how are we going to get out of this? We've got these questions going through our head. And, and I really want to help you this morning that if you're in that pot, impossible situation, I just need you to know and understand something, that when you begin to get desperate enough, you will turn somewhere. And when you turn somewhere, it's going to cause you to deeply trust whomever or whatever you're turning to. But you may be turning and trusting in the wrong thing. You see, Daniel and his three friends got put into an impossible situation. It forced them to turn somewhere, and then it caused them to trust somebody. So this text this morning in Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would expect you to be turning to Daniel chapter 2. If you don't, it'll appear on the screen behind you. But I'm going to need you to be in a text today. So if you want to pull out your phone and pull up a Bible app and go to Daniel chapter 2, that'd be great. There's some Bibles in the seats under, in the little pockets under the seats around you. Uh, we're going to be in the text this morning. Not just, it's not just going to be up on the screen. So we're going to have to look in the text. That's really why I prefer that you bring a hard copy of God's Word with you. And if you don't have one, Pastor Justin, the person who prayed for us during our offering, he, he's able to give you a Bible if you will come up to him after the service today. We'll, we'll give you a Bible to have, and not just a cheap Bible. We've actually, we'll give you a really good Bible. But what I want to do is I'm going to turn our eyes now to say, hey, what's really going on when we get into these impossible situations? What does God's Word have to say about impossible situations? So now that you're in Daniel chapter 2, I'm just going to read the first 30 verses this morning. Uh, we're not going to cover the whole entire thing, but 30 verses is ambitious. So I wonder if you just rise to your feet as we read God's Word. If you're new with us, I want to just remind you, uh, really if you're watching us online, hey, welcome. I really want to invite you to come to our service to be with us in person but the only reason that I have you stand is not because this is religious or customary. The reason I have you stand is because I want you to really, in your mind, understand there's a difference between when I'm speaking and when God's speaking. And when God's speaking, we've got to pay attention. We're going to honor Him and His Word. Is that cool? Right. So now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was what, church? And his sleep did what? Yeah, then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Well, wait a minute. Well, that's different. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. <laughs> the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. 
If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn from limb to limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Well, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, (laughs) I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who declared the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became what, church? Now, pay attention here, because he just didn't get angry. Notice it says two words. He became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and look for Daniel and his friends to do what? To kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, Man, what's, what's the reason the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times in that box. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we've requested of you, for you made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, (laughs) there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. But as for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you that's what to take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. 
but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Wow, Daniel, help me, man. I've already told you, but I'm going to tell you again. You see, impossible situations can cause us to desperately turn to the God of heaven. Impossible situations can cause us to desperately turn to the God in heaven. You see, I believe impossible situations happen to us all, and they come usually through through different means, but there's going to be some common ones they come through, and Daniel shows us that. First of all, we may face dreams that disturb us. We may face dreams that disturb us. Look back there in verses 1 through 3. It says, hey, in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, he had dreams, his spirit was troubled, his sleep left him. Then he calls in all these people, they come in, and then he says, hey, I had a dream, but my spirit is anxious to understand the dreams. Well, it says during the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, you have to remember that he succeeded his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar at that time had taken over the whole, what we know as the known world at the time. But the text says that it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, if you're paying attention, and I expect that you are, you automatically know that we have a problem here. Because how long were they tested before the king in chapter 1? Well, it says that they were tested for three years and then brought before the king. But now it says that in the second year of his reign, he brings some people here. So, so really what's going on in the text? Is it three years or is it in the second year? And this is where your Bible critics will say, see, ha ha, we got you. And this is where I say, you probably need to really listen to me. <laughs> because there was two ways of reckoning time. There was the Babylonian way and there was the Jewish way. In the Babylonian way, they never would have counted the first year of a king's reign in his reign. They would have went from the first year after he was in for the first year to the very end of his reign. That's how they adjudicated that kind of time. But Jewish people always considered it from the time he started his reign until the end of his reign. So in Jewish thinking, it is the third year, but in Babylonian thinking, it is the second year. Just have to understand some history and understand how different groups of people recorded time. So that settles that little discrepancy in your mind. It's one possibility, and that's all we really have to give. Nevertheless, we have this pagan Gentile king receiving this great prophetic truth. Well, that's interesting. Why would God choose to give a Gentile king this prophetic truth? Because Israel at the time was morally and spiritually bankrupt. And they were worse off than the Babylonians because the Babylonians didn't claim to follow God. The Israelites did, but they had become apostate. God was finished dealing with them with the time. Judgment was upon them. So what a rebuke of God for God to choose to give the greatest revelation of human history to a pagan king. The captivity of Israel began what is known now as the time of Gentiles. So with the beginning of this time, it's fitting that it be given to a Gentile king and, as we will see later, in a Gentile language. Okay, so the king's dreamed some dreams, and he was troubled so that he couldn't sleep, but why? Why is the king so troubled about this dream? Well, verse 29, if you'll look in the text, it tells you. 
Daniel says, O king, while you were in the bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's probably thinking, well, I'm, going, I'm not going to live forever. What's going to happen to me? There's probably going to come an end to my kingdom. He's known about how the Assyrians and the Egyptians have been wiped out. He's seen his own hand in wiping Judah out. So he's thinking, somebody's probably going to attack me, and it's probably going to be a horrible, miserable way that I go out. So he's troubled. The text, though, says that he dreamed dreams. He had dreams. The Hebrew literally says he dreamed dreams. It's plural. This is a reoccurring dream. It just wasn't a one time and he was done. And these dreams were so shocking and alarming that he couldn't sleep. They were devastating. The Bible says that he was troubled in his spirit. That, That means he was deeply, deeply disturbed. But yet God had ordained this dream. God used dreams a lot in the Old Testament. And so that leads us to ask the question you may be asking yourself, can God still speak to people in dreams today? I'll tell you that God can still speak to people in dreams today, but you need to understand this. He will never tell you anything in a dream that he hasn't already told you in his book. So if you find that you're being given some kind of revelation that's not found in this book, I'm just telling you that you haven't heard from God. You've heard from somebody else. Hebrews tells us that God spoke in various ways in the past, but now he speaks to us through his son. And the revelation about his son is complete. Nevertheless, in verse 2, he calls in these magicians and conjurers and sorcerers and Chaldeans. Basically, this is a brain trust. It's the intellectual and spiritually elite. As I spoke last week, the magicians are those who practice the occult, but they were also the scholars of the day. They kept records of the day. The enchanters or the conjurers are those who use incantations and exorcisms. The sorcerers are those who would cast spells on people. The astrologers were this priestly class in Babylon who tried to determine the future by looking in the stars. And the Chaldeans, they're just the wise men of the day. So he calls in the wisest, most knowledgeable in all the arts, sciences, and spiritual religion practices, period. All the demonism, all the occultism, all the human wisdom that was available, he called it all in, and he was afraid, and he wanted to know what the future held. Well, they come in, and they immediately see how disturbed he was. We we see that in verse 3, because the king says, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Well, he's had a lot of dreams, but only one dream is really messing him up, and he's like, I have to understand about that one. And I'm just telling you today, folks, if you don't think that dreams will disturb you, think about this. Why do people today have to understand their future so bad? Why is it today that people have dreams and visions and insights and thoughts that deeply concern them and they want to know what it means, so therefore we see it advertised everywhere. Turn to this psychic Look to this medium, go to this fortune teller, have this seance, look to this scientist, look to this futurologist. I've got to read my horoscope. I've got to find a tarot card setting that that actually can benefit me. Why, Why do we do that as a culture? Because we have these ideas and dreams that deeply disturb us. We stop and we all ask when we're going through impossible situations, what does this mean? We want to know how it's going to work out. I mean, we, we ask questions like this. Am I going to get married? Will I ever have a family? Will, will they ever repent? Will my prodigal come home? I mean, it's all deeply disturbing to us. And the Bible is telling us something right now. 
The Bible is telling us we've read it over and over. You just didn't know that you've read it over and over. But the Bible says five times in this chapter, but there is a God in heaven. And when your dreams deeply disturb you, the Bible is telling you that in desperation, you should turn to the God in heaven. But secondly, we may face dilemmas that distress us. Not only dreams that disturb us, but dilemmas that distress us. You see, they had an unusual practice, but it became usual for them. You may not have known this about those, those guys in that time, but they kept a record of everybody's dreams. They charted how a person's turn, life turned out after that dream. So if a guy had a similar dream and his life turned out in a similar way, then they decided that that's how they knew what the dream meant. They had massive libraries there. You can go online and look at it. You can even find, from where we've done archaeological studies, you can find remnants of the libraries of where they kept all these dreams. It's very interesting. So you would hear the dream, and then you would have to have time to go look it up in all the manuals and say, okay, well, this dream means this. And it would take a while to find the dream. You and I know that this is all a bunch of hocus pocus, but that's how they did it. There was so much material, they needed time to look through it. But Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream. That's a major problem that produced a major dilemma. Because in verse 4 it says, Then the Chaldeans spoke in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. In other words, if you just give us a place to start, we'll go find your dream in our books, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king's like, I'm not going to tell you my dream because I don't remember it, we find out later. So that creates a very big dilemma. Another textual note that if you were a scholar in the room or you're paying attention to these things, you would find interesting. From verse, and here, this chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, verse 28, the text moves from Hebrew to Aramaic. A lot of scholarship has been done on that, and a lot of people debate that, and I'm just a simple guy trying to give you guys a simple answer to a very complex question, but here's what I believe, in my humble opinion. I believe that the reason it was spoken Aramaic from here to chapter 728 is because this was the language of the day, and God was going to reveal the future of the Gentile nation, so he speaks in a Gentile language. But notice that they say, O king, live forever. <laughs> Well, that's funny, because that's exactly the opposite about what his dream says. This dream will reveal the opposite, but, but, but man, did they have some confidence. So they're just like, tell us the dream, king. We'll, we'll go look through our books, and we'll come back. But remember that game we used to play called show and tell? Y'all remember that game? You bring something in, you'd show it off, and then you'd tell everybody what it was. Well, they're doing the opposite. It's like, well, king, uh, man, if you'll tell us, we'll show you. <laughs> If you'll tell us your dream, we'll show you what it means. And that's created a tremendous dilemma because the king's saying, I'm not going to play that. So in verse 5, he says, the command for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to cut you in little pieces, and then I'm going to make your home a public outhouse. That's literally what it says. Verse 5, though, says something interesting in another, another translation. It says, this thing has gone from me. So the king says basically, no, if you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to do bad things to you, and then I'm going to humiliate you by putting a public outhouse on your cut-up body in your home. 
That was a way of Nebuchadnezzar being as evil as he possibly could, a way of dishonoring people. They, they did that. You see this other places in the Old Testament. He's deeply disturbed. He's really desperate. Yet in verse 6, he says, you've got two choices. You can either tell me and, and you get rewarded and I'll give you gifts and great honor, or if you don't, I'm going to kill you. So in desperation, he's really putting them to the test. And after I've studied this more and more, I believe that the king is basically saying, I know that you guys have been lying to me, and I know that this whole thing is a hoax. I know that your system is a fraud. You're so smart and think you're so spiritual, but you can't even do this. So he puts them to the test. And in verse 7 it says, they answered and said, please, king, just tell us the dream, and we'll declare its interpretation. They're sticking with their system. Hey, king, don't be unreasonable. Just tell us this thing and we'll help you. But I think God has allowed the king to forget the dream to show the stupidity, the vanity, and the emptiness of their gods, of their spirituality, of their wisdom. They couldn't do a thing unless they knew the dream. And God knew that. So God hid the dream from the king. Verse 8, the king says, listen, I know for certain, and that's, that's bold, that you are bargaining from time and that's what you're up to. You're just stalling. You're just, you're just hoping I'm going to forget about this dream. Or you're just stalling to figure out some way because you know my habits that I'm going to start killing people. Verse 9, the text says, that if you don't make it known to me, there's only one thing that's going to happen. For you have agreed together, now watch, to speak lying, verse 9, and corrupt words before me. Well, that's interesting. I'm not going back on what I've said. I'm going to cut you to pieces. I'm going to make a public outhouse over your home. Why? Why is he so drastic? Because he tells us there. He says, you have prepared lies. You are lying to me. You are deceiving me. And I'm not falling for it this time. Well, that's interesting because you see, when we face impossible situations, you and I get into these dilemmas. We begin to freak out and we begin to ask, well, what are we going to do? Many times we face dilemmas and we know something drastic has to happen and we don't have all the information and we're running around trying to figure out how to make it happen before the decisions are made that could cost us deeply. Decisions have to be made. Important things are riding on what we need to know and we just don't have the information. And so these dilemmas, they bring great distress upon us and we're like the king and we're just about ready to flip out and do something we'll regret forever. But God says in his word, but there is a God in heaven to whom you can turn to. There's a God in heaven. When you are deeply distressed over dilemmas that are going on in your life, the Bible's telling you that you can turn to the God in heaven. But then you also may face deficiencies that discourage you. We face deficiencies that discourage us. Look in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered and said, there's not a man on earth who could declare this matter. And by the way, king, no, no kings ever ask anything that you're asking of anyone like us. I mean, this is impossible. This is impossible. Nobody can do this. And if you think, O oh, king, that anybody can do this, you're wrong. And the cool thing about it is, is these lying people now start telling the truth. It is true. No one can do this. There is no person, no horoscope, no mind control, no hypnosis, no book. Nobody on earth, no ruler, no king, no one. No one can do this. The deficiency of human ability to figure this out is discouraging. So verse 11, moreover, 
There's no one else to declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with moral flesh. In other words, this is hard. This has never been done before. Now they start to really get to the real issue that only some supernatural being could do this. And what this is telling us is that human deficiency is absolutely unable to help us. There is no human on earth that can help. And when you and I come to the end of all those that we thought could help, when we turn to those things and we, we find out that, that there's nobody and nothing can help us, you and I begin to get very discouraged and we begin to ask the question they're asking, then who can we turn to? And that's what this text has shown us, that in those discouraging times that you're trying to figure out those things, the Bible is saying, but there is a God in heaven to whom you can turn to. Then it tells us that we may face decrees that defeat us. We may face decrees that defeat us. Look in verse 12. The king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. As I pointed out, he's not just indignant. He's so furious. He's so angry. He's actually going to kill people because they can't tell him a dream. So he makes a decree to kill all the wise men. He's made it because he's afraid. He can't trust them and he can't believe them. So in verse 13, it says the decree went out that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. You see, if you remember, Daniel and his friends were made a part of this court. They, they were the people that were elevated and, and they were apprentices at this point, but nonetheless, they were responsible and had to be held accountable. They're all facing a, a decree that's absolutely going to defeat them. And maybe you've heard some decrees in your life that are defeating you now, like, like you're never going to amount to anything or you're never going to figure that out. Things have been said to you. Your cancer is terminal. You're going to die from this or I'm going to leave you. I'm never coming back or we're getting a divorce or you're fired or your career is over and you're asking yourself, oh no, what am I going to do to get out of this one? And I'm telling you, the Bible is telling us this morning, if that is where you're at in this impossible situation, it's telling you that you can desperately turn to the God in heaven. In your desperation, turn. These four young teenagers face this impossible situation, and yet it caused them to desperately turn to the God in heaven because in verse 17 and 18, as we've read several times, Daniel goes to his house and says, hey, here's what's happening, guys. And then they pray and ask God to have compassion on them. You see, impossible situations can cause you to desperately turn to the God in heaven. Do y'all remember the lady in the, in the New Testament that had an issue with blood? And she had been bleeding for 12 years, the Bible tells us, and she had went to every doctor that she possibly could go to. She had sought every medical advice that she could find. She had turned to all the healers. She had turned to everyone and everything that she knew to help her with her situation. But in deep, deep desperation, she sees this Messiah, and she's like, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. She touched his garment, and she was healed. And I'm just telling you today that the scripture here is telling us that when you and I face this dilemma like she had and, and it distressed her, what am I going to do? I can't even worship. I want to worship, but my issue of blood is keeping me from the temple. God, how am I supposed to worship you? That's a dilemma she faced. How disturbed she was by all this working out in her life was, 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 was just 
completely destroying her. She had heard the decrees over and over and over. You can't come in here with that kind of an issue. Yet she says, man, if I can just get to Jesus. So what are you facing right now? What impossible situations are you facing and where have you been turning? In your brokenness and in your desperation, can I tell you to join me in taking your impossible situation and let's turn to the God of heaven. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. You see, impossible situations can cause us to desperately turn to the God of heaven, but secondly... Possible situations can cause us to deeply trust in the God in heaven. You see, it's not enough to just desperately turn to somebody. Because in my desperation, if I turn to you, but then I don't really trust that you're going to help me, what good is that? They've, They've said that only gods could reveal this. We can't handle this. This is an impossible situation. So Daniel teaches us that, yes, we're to turn to the God in heaven, but then when you turn to him, you have to deeply trust that he knows what he's doing. Daniel goes to God in deep trust. He prays and asks God to intervene. He prays and asks God to help him in this impossible situation. And then you want to know how I know that Daniel deeply trusted God? Let me just help you here. You don't see it here as much as it's an observation that that after study, I want you to see how I've made this. Watch this. Just just watch this. Daniel so trusts God to figure this out that after he prays, he goes to sleep. The king is currently hunting you down to cut you up into little pieces. And Daniel makes a prayer, and then he goes to sleep. That is deep trust, friends. That is deep trust. And you see, when you and I deeply trust God like that, there's going to be some things that show up and how we deal with life just like they did with Daniel. You want to know how we can find out when we're deeply trusting God? Daniel shows us, first of all, we can face situations with a calm poise. We can face any situation with a calm poise. We don't have to freak out. Verse 14, the Bible says that Daniel replied with what? Discretion and discernment. To Arioch, the king, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men. Everyone's frazzled, including the king. They're all in a state of panic. They're fearful and they're frustrated, but not Daniel. He's calm. He's composed. He faced this situation with calm poise. He had a deep trust in the God of heaven. And let me help you here. Let me just, let me just help you, church, for a moment. Daniel didn't wait to this moment to have a deep trust in God. He had been nurturing that thing for a long time, as we've talked about. Daniel had a walk with his God long before that happened. And all these impossible situations are going to do is really reveal where you're at in relationship with the Lord. If you begin to freak out, I'm just telling you, it's because you don't trust this one. And the reason you don't trust him is because you don't know him. You've got to get to know God long before this happens, friends. Deep trust results in being able to speak with discretion, counsel, discernment, and wisdom. He spoke reasonably. 
He was so calm and so poised, and you can too. When you and I trust the God in heaven, verse 15, then he said to Arach, the king's commander, man, why is this happening? What's so urgent about this? And he did that in such a way. This is the king's executioner. Big bad dude, doesn't play around with people, doesn't deal with small talk really well, just lops people's heads off. And Daniel's like, Steve Brown paraphrase, bro, what's the hurry? And he asks it in such a way with such poise that this, this executioner tells him the whole, the whole deal. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't a dude who had palm olive hands, you know what I mean? I've been washing dishes for a living. This was an executioner. And Daniel's just like, man, there's no fear here. There's no reason for me to freak out. Hey, just tell me what's going on. Why why are we in a hurry to do this? When things are in a panic, we need a guy like Daniel. And I'm telling you, you can be just like Daniel. You can trust the God of heaven and face your impossible situation with calm poise because you trust in the God of heaven. Isaiah tells me that God keeps in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on Him. Beloved, because there's a God in heaven, we can face situations with calm poise, but then you can also face situations with courageous persuasion. Courageous persuasion. Look in verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him what? Give him time? <laughs> Well, I find that super interesting because the last time people asked for time, what happened? The king got furious and said, I'm going to cut y'all up. So here it is. Now Daniel goes back into the king and he's asking for what? He's asking for time. But see, you have to remember that Daniel is between 17 and 19 years of age. He is a captive Nebuchadnezzar is angry, furious, foaming at the mouth, wants to hack people into pieces, and in comes this young man who has courageously persuaded the executioner for an audience with the king. That's incredibly courageous. Then he courageously asks the king for more time. This is courage. He's able to courageously persuade people because he trusts in the God in heaven. And you and I can have that kind of courage when we're trusting in God. But the question is, the question is this, how did Daniel know that he could give the king the dream and its interpretation? Well, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel's like, oh, God, you've gifted me and you've said this about me. Here's my moment. This is my time. This is when we actually do this. And then why did the king give Daniel time? We've got to ask that question. He didn't give it to the others because in verse 20 of chapter 1, And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than everybody else. So the king's like, you know what? Maybe I can trust these guys. Maybe these guys aren't lying to me. Maybe there's something about what's going on here. But nevertheless, because there's a God in heaven, we can face situations with courageous persuasion. But then also we can face situations with consuming prayer. 
with consuming prayer. Verse 17, it says, hey, Daniel tells his friends, hey, man, we're going to lose our heads unless we can come up with this dream and its interpretation. Verse, verse 17 tells us that Daniel brings his friends that they pray. What did they do? Well, I don't believe they just got down and said, well, God, I hope you figure this out. I believe they were consumed in prayer. I think they sought the compassion and mercy of God. They sought wisdom for the, for the God of the universe to give them the dream and its interpretation. They were begging God for their lives. Let me pause here and interject something. You see, Daniel knew that he had been given wisdom and he had been given spiritual gifts to interpret these visions and dreams. Yet he prayed. Can I remind you that no matter how gifted you are or how confident you are, without prayer, you are simply a fool to move forward. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how talented you are, if you think you can handle things in this life without prayer, you are a fool. Daniel didn't expect to receive anything, even though he had been gifted in it without praying. And he relied upon the compassion and power of his God. These wise men are looking to the stars. Daniel looks to the one who made the stars. Sometimes we take our troubles to other people. Daniel took other people with him to the God that will solve all troubles. There's power in prayer. I don't know if you know, but Mary, the Queen of Scots, one time she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. There's just such power in prayer. And when we get consumed in prayer, we can face really any situation. Because there's a God in heaven, we can face situations with consuming prayer. And then also we can face situations with contented praise. With contented praise, verse 18, the Bible says that they might request from the, the compassion from the God of heaven so Daniel and his friends wouldn't be destroyed. Then in verse 19, it says something interesting. The mystery was revealed then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel prayed and then he rested. That's trust. And as I've studied this, I've come across some scholars who offer maybe an idea of what happened here. Maybe God allowed Daniel to dream the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. But no matter what, God had answered their prayer. And the first thing that Daniel did, the first thing after God saved his life, after God had given him the dream and the interpretation, the first thing Daniel did was to try to go and appease the king's anger. The first thing that Daniel did was try to go appease the wrath and, and avoid the death sentence. The first thing Daniel did was move in on the king and say, hey, I got an answer. That's the first thing he did, right? No. The first thing Daniel did was stop and give praise to God. What did he say? He said in verse 20, he said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the time and epochs. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to men and knowledge to men of understanding. He reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells. To you, God, I give thanks. You've given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what the king requested. You've made known to me the king's answer. Daniel in summary form talks about the omniscience of God, that he knows everything. He talks about the omnipotence of God, that he can do anything. And he talks about the, the, the overall omnipresence of God, that he's everywhere, he even knows what's in the darkness. He covers all three of them in verse 23, if you look at it. In verse 23, he says, we see that he must have made the dream and its interpretation known to his friends because he says that we, and he says that God made known to us. 
So here's what this is telling me. Not only did Daniel pray with these three friends, he also praised God with these three friends. You see, Daniel was not a fatalist. Things are just going to happen the way they are. He was a sovereignist. He believed God's word was going to come true. And you and I can deeply trust God and pray, and God will reveal things to us. And when he does, we can face situations with contented praise. So let me ask you this question. Do you really praise God for answered prayers? Do you really get on your face and praise him to the extent that you prayed about what it was that you were asking for? I found that in my life, I get to God and, and I pray, God, please do this, please do this. And then I see him answer and I'm like, God, thank you for doing that. And I move on. But I wonder what it would do to my heart if I were to praise him with the same intensity that I prayed. You spend time praising God for answered prayer. You see, because there's a God in heaven, we can face situations with contented praise. And lastly, very quickly, we can face situations with confident proclamation. Verse 24, Daniel says, He goes into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men. He went and spoke to him as follows. Don't destroy the wise men. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. You notice, first of all, Daniel's compassion for those that were around him. You know, he's first not interested in telling the king his dream. The first thing he says, we've got to save some people's lives. I don't know if you paid attention here, but you've got to see it because it's important that you understand this. In verse 18, it says that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. Here's my point. When you receive the compassion of God in heaven, you will be quick to want to give it to other people. That's how this thing works. When I, when I receive the compassion of God, that's then how I can love my neighbor. When I, I'm loving God, that's how I can love my neighbor. The first order was from the king. Now orders are being taken from Daniel. <laughs> that's wild. The first confident proclamation is not to kill the men. Then he says, hey, I'm going to make another proclamation. Take me to the king. <laughs> Verse 25, Arach hurriedly takes him there. That means in excitement. It doesn't mean just in hurry. It means excitement. And then the, the, he, this guy goes in there and says, hey, I found a man. Well, I don't really know if you found the man, but I understand It's interesting there, though, that he says, I've found a man, but I thought earlier that they said there's no man that can do this, unless he's a man of God. That's interesting. Well, can you do it, Daniel? Verse 26, are you sure you can do this? Verse 27, Daniel says, this was not revealed to me by my own doing, my gifting or smarts. I mean, I may have been 10 times wiser to you, but that's not where this thing has come from. It definitely, Daniel said, didn't come from those liars and deceivers that have set themselves against the one true God. But here's another proclamation, verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven. <laughs> that, woo, man, that is a proclamation we all got to live by. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he's made known to you what's going to take place. He made known to you what you're visions were you when you're on your bed. Verse 29, as for you, king, you lay on your bed, your thoughts turn to what play takes in the future. He reveals mysteries and made known to you that what will take place. I mean, the God of heaven has given you this dream. The revealer of secrets, the revealer of mysteries has given you this dream. Verse 30, but it's for me. This hasn't been revealed to me for anything resting in me, but for the purpose of making it known to you that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is so humble. 
The contrast, I don't know if you've found it, the Arioch, the king's executioner, says, I've found a man. The king's all prideful and, and he wants to kill everybody, but Daniel in humbleness just says, hey, listen, this wasn't from me and this isn't about me. He doesn't point to himself. He points to the God in heaven. He makes a confident proclamation, but he does so in great humility. You see, you and I can confidently speak the revelation, the promises of God over any and every impossible situation. You and I have the authority to speak and believe and know that what God has spoken will come to pass. Because there is a God in heaven, you and I can face situations with confident proclamations that there is a God in heaven and he will do what he says he's going to do. Sometimes when we face impossible situations, we turn to and trust in other things. Sometimes it's our ability. Sometimes it's chance. Sometimes it's luck. I'll never forget a saying I heard one time about people who carry around a a rabbit's foot and just trust in luck. Friends, if you carry around a rabbit's foot, I just want to ask you one question. How did that work out for the rabbit? I don't know if you ever thought about that. (laughs) You know, I always wanted to get certified in scuba diving. It's been one of my dreams. It's been one of my passions. And my wife and I go on these cruises and This is one thing that I I wanted to do is be certified as a scuba diver so I could take some deeper dives. I'm so jealous of people who bring their equipment on the boat, and I'm like, man, I want to do that. I want to be able to take some night dives in some places too because you can see some things at night you'd never see. And, And so while I've been studying this and trying to prepare for some of that, I learned something about night diving. You see, at night in the water, you can... Hardly see a foot past your fast flashlight. I mean, it's, it's really hard to see very far in the dark, in the water. Y'all know that. What you may not know is that in the dark, in the water, it's extremely easy to get disoriented once you go a certain depth. It's so easy to get disoriented in the dark that you can no longer tell which way is up. Divers talk about this stuff all the time, and and this can cause people to freak out. So they do training sessions just on that orientation. And they, they tell the divers, they say this, when you're in the dark and you're disoriented and you don't know which way is up, all you have to do is simply feel for your bubbles. Because your bubbles are always going to go up. I began to think about that. Sometimes we get in these impossible situations and we're overwhelmed by it all and we can't make sense of things and we're so disoriented we don't even know which way is up. Can I tell you, there is a God in heaven and if you'll just look to Him, I promise you, His way is always up. His way is always up. You can turn to Him and follow Him out of the darkness because the Bible just told us that he knows what dwells in the dark. See, impossible situations can cause us to desperately turn to the God in heaven, and they can cause us to deeply trust in the God in heaven. And you may be here, and I know you may be checking out, but listen, because I'm, I'm really almost done. You may have tried to make the relationship work. I don't know who you are in this audience this morning, but you may have tried to make the relationship work. You've tried to fix what is broken, and it's all failed, and you feel like there is no hope. But friend, I've got good news. There is a God in heaven, and His power starts in that relationship where yours ends. There is a God in heaven that can help you in your relationship. You've tried to make your kids turn out right. I mean, you've tried everything you know how to do. You've taught them everything that you know how to do. You've tried to help them to choose what's right and to stay away from what's wrong, but yet there's 
there's now there's nothing left for you to do, but I'm telling you this morning, there is a God in heaven who can bring your child home. You've tried to overcome that addiction. You've tried, you've tried. What's the missing part? You've failed so many times and you've started to think there's just no point in trying to overcome this addiction because there's nothing but failure on the horizon. Can I tell you today? But there is a God in heaven. Death and disease, they seem so fatal. They seem so total. And this year, they've taken things from you that you never can get back. And so you're saying, what's the point? Why might I just die now? I mean, won't death just take it all away from me anyway? But I'm telling you today, there is a God in heaven who can help you. You may be here this morning, you're disappointed in the political situation in our nation. You're dismayed by our leaders. Democrats have disappointed you. Republicans have disappointed you. Listen, newsflash, if you were in power, you would disappoint us too. But you don't have to trust in the White House. You can trust in the God who's in his house. There is a God in heaven. And speaking of disappointments, let me talk about you for a moment. Because some of you... No one has disappointed you more than you have. No one has lied to you, let you down, or broken promises to you more than you have. And you have no confidence to go forward and create a better future than the one you think that you have today. But I am telling you today, there is a God in heaven to whom you can turn. But you see, as the band comes, I don't want you to miss this incredible, incredible, incredible point. If you've tuned me out, tune back in. Because you're going to miss the whole point of the message. If you're not careful, you'll leave thinking that the point of this message or this passage is that when we turn to God and we trust God, He will intervene in our impossible situation and make it all better. That could be what you heard. If I just turn and trust God, he's going to answer me like he did Daniel. That's not the point. See, when it doesn't turn out the way you trusted God for, will you turn from the God you trusted in? See, this is not about God fixing your impossible situation. This is about you fixing on the God of the impossible. This is not about what God can do for you. It's about who God is and will you trust in the sovereignty of God. You see, Daniel and his friends didn't get a pass. In the very next chapter, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. Absolutely an impossible situation, but you see, they've learned something now. See, it's not about God getting us out of an impossible situation. It's really about trusting God no matter what. Because Daniel chapter 3, 17 and 18 says this. Daniel 3, 17 and 18 says, O king, says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. But even if he does not, did you see those words? They're still going to trust God. They're still going to trust God. 
And that leads me to the final point is to say this. This whole message has been given to say this to you, and it'll come up on the screen. Even, even if it doesn't turn out the way we've trusted, we're not turning from the God in whom we trust. Even if it doesn't turn out the way we've trusted, we're not going to turn from the God in whom we trust. Will you this morning trust God even though your child never comes home? Will you still trust God after you've prayed for God to take away your cancer and he doesn't? Will you still trust God when that business of yours fails and you prayed and God gave it to you? Will you still trust him when it doesn't look like he's done anything to help you? So would you rise to your feet? I'm going to pray a prayer. And I invite you to come down to this altar and pray. I invite you to come down to this altar this morning and put your trust in this God, maybe whom you're, you're struggling with, to say, God, I do, I trust you. Maybe you've never trusted him to take away your sin. Maybe you've never trusted the fact that he died and was buried and raised again for your salvation. This morning, you need to settle that. You need to trust him to save you and to make you right with him. I don't really know what's happening in your heart, but I want to pray, and there'll be people here that you can pray with. Holy Spirit of God, would you take our hearts and help us to trust, even if you don't. In those moments in our lives, when it doesn't look like you're answering, or when the answer is something, we never expected. And I pray it in Jesus' name.